morning, everyone, and um, first of all, I want to thank you all for uh, those who prayed. Uh, I was uh, sick last uh, weekend, um, actually Sunday morning, I uh, found out I had COVID, and uh, that was just not fun, but it wasn't as bad as last time, and uh, so I recovered actually pretty quickly, uh, very thankful. Uh, Angela was sick as well, actually she kind of took the brunt of it. Yeah, but she has recovered as well, so we are very thankful. So thank you for praying. Uh, also, uh, yesterday we had, as uh, Andy mentioned, our, our first men's all-day fellowship, uh, 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., like 12 straight hours. Uh, it was really just such a wonderful time, and uh, just uh, thank you for those of you who made it. I hope it was an encouraging time, uh, one that we will continue to build on as we wants to encourage the men of our church to really honor the Lord. Well, this morning we'll be starting off our study of 1 Thessalonians, and uh, I do hope to take it at a little quicker rate than Matthew. Uh, Matthew took about nine years, uh, took breaks here and there, <laughs> but 1 Thessalonians is definitely not as long. Uh, my hope, my goal is to actually uh, preach through First and Second Second Thessalonians, uh, hopefully by next summer, and so uh, so that means we'll go at it a little bit quicker. Now, one of the things that I'm really uh, excited about is to kind of get back to giving you perspective um, in walking through books of the Bible and in, in the New Testament. Uh, we've been reading the New Testament this year, and I hope you've been encouraged. Uh, in becoming more familiar with the flow of Scripture. Uh, sometimes there are folks who haven't really read the whole Bible through, so you're not familiar with everything. And uh, at least for the New Testament, uh, if you were to break it up into sections, the, the first four books are the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, and then you have the history of the church, which is really a continuation of the Gospel of Luke. You then have the Pauline epistles, Romans through Philemon, and the general epistles, Hebrews through Jude, and then it ends with Revelation. Uh, but I want to show a graphic, and uh, hopefully they can put it on now. Uh, I borrowed this from Tim Challies. Uh, these are Paul's letters. And uh, for any of you who recognize kind of like the formatting, it's like the periodic chart. Um, I thought it was just really helpful. One, I like colorful things. And two, I like things that help hopefully encourage you to remember. Now, I, I realize that a lot of people haven't maybe systematically gone through Scripture. And so at least for the Pauline epistles, you'll notice that there are 13 of them, starting with Romans, then First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. Now, I don't know about the front and the back end, but at least in the middle, uh, one thing I learned back in junior high was how could you at least remember Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians? G-E-P-C. And so I remember learning, uh, go eat popcorn. So if you're not sure what, what book, what, what order, think popcorn. Go eat popcorn. Or Gentiles eat pork chops. Or General Electric Power Company. I remember learning that in junior high and thinking that's funny, but it actually helped. I, I know the order, at least, of those four epistles. Now, uh, bookending those four, Romans and First Corinthians, and then after Colossians, you have First Thessalonians through Philemon. 
I think it's helpful. I don't know if you maybe grew up in a Christian home when you were younger and learned the books of the Bible. Like, I remember our daughters, and I think they can still remember watching or listening to songs, uh, even going through challenges. You know, one challenge was to light a match and try to say all the books of the Bible before the flame hit your finger. You blow it out. Maybe try that without your kids watching. Uh, they might not get a good idea. <laughs> but um, I think it's really important to make sure that you actually memorize the order of the books of the Bible. One, so that you could find it when you're looking at an actual physical Bible. I, I know when you have uh, your phones and you're like, oh, I just have to, all I have to do is look for it, it, it or just punch it in, and it's so easy to find. And, and that's fine. But uh, mark my words, there will be a day when someone will attack uh, the power grids of the United States and you will no longer have access to electricity, you will no longer have a phone, tablets, computers, so you're going to want at least one Bible, okay? And I'm just telling you ahead of time, you're all going to get old one day, so you're going to need something with larger print, all right? So that's why I I have a larger print Bible, but I would say you need at least four Bibles, four Bibles, okay? Uh, One is your handy-dandy New Testament, Psalms, Proverbs, right? This is so you can carry along wherever you go. I would say second is like a compact size full Bible. I mean, nice size. It uh, is easy to carry around. And then you need a study Bible. Okay, four Bibles. That's all you need, four Bibles. Okay, if you need help with that, I'd be happy to talk to you about Bibles because I love Bibles. And uh, one study Bible is helpful, so you have some... Uh, resources there. Now, getting to 1 Thessalonians, I'm going to give, today's going to be mostly an introductory kind of message to 1 Thessalonians. So here's some introductory information. It was written by Paul, possibly with some help from Silvanus or Silas, and I'll talk about him a little later, and Timothy, because you'll see in the greeting that those three names are mentioned. It's one of the earliest letters by Paul, written sometime between 50 and 52 A.D., has five chapters, 89 verses, and it was particularly written by Paul because of the abrupt nature of his departure from Thessalonica during the second missionary journey. So he writes this a number of months later when he's uh, actually in Corinth, and he wants to explain to them what happened, but he also communicates his genuine affection for the church. Some would say that this is probably the warmest and most personal letter, letter that Paul wrote. The language that he uses emphasizes how much he cares for them. Chapters 2 and 3 are focused on communicating his heart toward the church and explaining why he had to leave, but also how much he treasured the relationship with them. In chapters 4 and 5, there's a particular focus on eschatology. Uh, 2 Thessalonians addresses this as well. And this is where Paul writes the most about the end times. In fact, in chapter 4, it's the uh, chapter where the idea of the rapture of the church is discussed, uh, one which is uh, somewhat controversial, and people differ on how they view that. But it was written to address some errant teaching or some wrong teaching that entered the church that had said that the return of Christ had already happened so some people are like, well, if it's already happened, like, why bother doing anything? We don't need to work. We can just kind of, you know, just hang out, mess around, do nothing. So he addresses that, corrects them. 
There is a focus also on sanctification and holy living. Apparently that was an issue in the Thessalonian church. He uses the term brothers in a very personal and intimate tone that is unusually high in frequency. I mean, for as long as that letter is, five chapters, he uses that term in a way that really communicates warmth. So some of the themes that I've already mentioned, sanctification, eschatology, uh, communion of the saints, and even talking about scripture or the word of God, you'll see him reference that, the word of God. But one thing I really want to highlight is this. First Thessalonians is the kind of letter that I would say should reflect the heart of those who are leaders in the church toward the sheep. There was a compassion and an affection that Paul shares about the Thessalonians. He uses especially uh, terminology related to parenting, that of a tender care of a nursing mother or the exhorting and encouraging heart of a father in chapter 2. And I think that's really something that uh, maybe churches, especially in our circles where there's such an emphasis on truth, uh, could really take some consideration. Say, well, how do you care for the sheep? So that's just a little bit of an introductory background. First point for today is the historical backstory. Now, one of the things, when you read these letters, which are primarily instruction, and so you might almost treat it like, oh, it's kind of like school, like a textbook. I got to learn principles. I got to learn truth statements. But you have to understand there's a backstory behind all of it. I mean, even when you think about our church, you might try to reduce it to the events or meetings or teachings or whatever, but don't forget that there are people involved, like real people. In fact, uh, the book of Acts provides the historical backstory, uh, and I'm going to go back a little ways so that you can kind of see how this story develops, especially with the three people that are introduced in the beginning, Paul, Silvanus, or Silas, and Timothy. So go to Acts chapter 15, Acts chapter 15, right? We're going to uh, look, look around in our Bibles a little bit. Uh, the book of Acts provides the historical backstory. Paul and Barnabas, they've gone to Jerusalem because there are those who are teaching that salvation had to be accompanied by circumcision and keeping of the law of Moses. Now, just think about that, okay? I mean, we can't relate to that because that's not our context, but when the church first started, it was in predominantly a Jewish context, Right? Uh, in Acts chapter 2, the, the church starts in Jerusalem. And so the first uh, members of the church were those who had formerly worshipped uh, in a Jewish religious system, Judaism. But now they have come to Christ by grace through faith. But then there were those, and this happened early on in the history of the church, where there were those who said that they were Christians, and whether they were or not, we don't know, but they were teaching something definitely wrong, and that was in order to be saved, you had to be circumcised, keep the law of Moses. You know, that's a little awkward kind of thing to think about, but in that context, circumcision defined the Jewish people. Now imagine going to church, imagine coming to Lighthouse Bible Church, and we have membership class, and we say, you know what, this is how you get saved. You look to Jesus Christ, Trust them in faith, and you need to get circumcised. I don't know 
know how many people would want to become members. Well, at least the guys. I'm not sure how it relates to the ladies here, right? But anyway, back then, Paul uh, and Barnabas, because that on the first missionary journey, they had uh, gotten into uh, the context of ministering to the Gentiles. Gentiles were getting saved. But now there are Jews who are saying, well, no, you, you, you need to, in addition to the gospel message, keep the law of Moses and get circumcised. So they're meeting in Jerusalem. This chapter is known as the Jerusalem Council. Peter speaks up and he, and he challenges these folks who are advocating for this view. In fact, what they're doing is they're adding works to salvation. And he reminds them that historically, the Jews themselves never were able to bear that yoke in the first place. Right? I mean, you read the whole Old Testament. It was never that the law and circumcision saved them. But what it did reveal was the impossibility of being saved on your own, by your own merit. And he's saying, why would you want to place that yoke on others? I mean, it didn't do you any good. Why would you want to do what, use that on the Gentiles? Salvation was always meant to be through grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter made it clear that both Jews and Gentiles were saved by the same gospel of grace. Now James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, he was one of the key leaders of the church in Jerusalem, he affirms Peter's message. And so what he says is, yes, we do not add anything to the gospel. But one of the things, that, and this is something that you might miss in reading through the book of Acts, he communicates, well, we want the Gentiles just as much as the Jews should not impose or offend the Gentiles with their Judaistic practices, there are some things that the Gentiles could also be careful about so that they would not offend their Jewish brothers. So he says we sh you should abstain from things contaminated by idols, for instance, food offered to idols. Why? Because Jews would see Gentiles do that. Uh, you know, in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul addresses that don't offend your weaker brother who came out of that background. In fact, he says, I'm willing to forego eating meat. And he goes, we know idols are nothing. Uh, last night we had tacos. Oh, so good. Like there are four different kinds of meat. And Josh prepared just a, a wonderful menu. And, you know, every time I think about this, I go, could I give up meat because there was a brother that came and said, you know, it, it really offends me that you would eat this meat that was offered on the altar of secular American consumerism. I'm like, what the heck is that? I mean, what are you talking about? It's just meat. It's beef. It's good. I don't know. That would be really hard. But Peter, uh, Paul goes, I'm willing to forego eating meat so that I would consider my weaker brother. So that's kind of like what James is trying to tell them. Consider your brothers who might struggle. Uh, he says abstain from sexual immorality. I mean, that's just really God's will. Remember, we talked about that yesterday in 1 Thessalonians 4. And to also abstain from what was strangled and from blood. Those are things related to the uh, Mosaic ceremonial law that Jews had abstained from. So he said, you know, you Gentiles, you can be sensitive to your Jewish brothers and sisters by not doing those things. 
They were not conditions for the gospel. Rather, they were uh, words of wisdom so that the Gentiles would learn to love and accept their Jewish brothers and sisters to not offend them unnecessarily. Yes, they had freedoms, but don't use your freedoms for your own selfish uh, desires to be met. So the apostles and elders of the church in Jerusalem, they chose men to go to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They had come from there and had them deliver a letter to share with the church to affirm the decision that had been made in Jerusalem. One of those men, in Acts 15.22, is Silas. This is where Silas is introduced. Silas is also Silvanus, okay, from 1 Thessalonians 1.1. So this, this uh, delegation goes to Antioch, saw Silas, along with a guy named Judas, who was also not known as Barsabbas. So not Judas Iscariot. Judas was a common name. Uh, I don't know anyone today who would want to name their boy Judas. That just, uh, it's like naming your son Adolf. You just don't go there, right? But back then, I mean, there were many Judases, so just so you don't confuse them. Judas, Silas, along with a few others went. And it says that Silas and Judas encouraged and strengthened the brothers in Antioch. And it says this, with a lengthy message. So you're not the only ones that get lengthy messages, right? Uh, the church of Antioch got lengthy messages from Silas and Judas. Now, after the delegation had done their ministry there, they went back to Jerusalem. But Silas stays in Antioch. Now, that's important to understand because Later on, when there are decisions to be made, guess who's there ready to serve? Silas. So he stays, Paul and Barnabas, they continue their ministry in Antioch. At the end of Acts chapter 15, now don't forget, uh, the first missionary journey was Acts 13 and 14. Paul and Barnabas had gone. So at the end of Acts 15, after the Jerusalem council, after the delegation has come, Paul says to Barnabas, in verse uh, 36 of Acts 15, let us return and visit the brothers in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. So what he wants to do is go back, retrace their steps of the first missionary journey. Barnabas is like, okay, great. You know what? I have an idea. Let's bring John Mark. Now, who is John Mark? John Mark was someone that went on the first missionary journey, but he deserted them. He bailed on them. Now, you might think, well, was that a really big deal? Yeah, it's kind of a big deal. I mean, if you're part of a team that's sent out by the church to go take the gospel and someone bails on you, yeah, it's kind of a big deal. Now, Barnabas, who was known as the son of encouragement, he was the encouraging guy. He's like, let's give him another chance. Let's give him another. I can kind of relate to that. I'd like to give people a second chance or a third chance, fourth chance, whatever. Why? Because you want to give people the hope that they can recover, even maybe after they have failed. I mean, if anyone would have understood that, it would be the Apostle Peter, right? I mean, he failed spectacularly. Why? Because he was the one that boasted so proudly that he would never deny Christ. And what did he do? He denied Christ. Not only that, he denied him three times. And in one of the gospel accounts, it says, as he denied him the third time and the, the, the rooster crowed, it says that he, he and Jesus locked eyes. 
How do you think Peter felt there? I mean, it's no wonder that he was so broken. Now, Paul, and you can kind of understand Paul. Paul, I think, was one of those guys who was like, you know what? We got work to do. We cannot waste the opportunity. If someone bails, okay, send them back to rookie, rookie league. He, he shouldn't be a part of this. Have him start, go back, set up chairs or something. But I don't think he should be on this journey to go back and minister to the churches. It says that Barnabas and Paul had such a sharp disagreement that they actually separated ways. Barnabas takes John Mark and sails to Cyprus, and so Paul needs someone to replace him. So who does he choose? The guy that's been waiting and available, Silas. So with the blessing of the Antioch church, they go to revisit the churches that they had helped start during the first journey. So in Acts 15, 41, it says that he traveled through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And beginning in Acts 16, it says Paul and Silas arrive in Derby and Lystra. And guess who they meet there? Timothy. Timothy was the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. It says that Timothy was well spoken of by the brethren in Lystra and Iconium. So Paul hears this, and he wants to take on Timothy to be part of the team. Now here's something very interesting. Remember real people, real people, real situation. Because Timothy was half Greek, Paul took him and it says, and circumcised him. Okay, I don't know. The, again, awkward thing to talk about, but think of it this way. Paul's like, hey, Timothy, hey, Timmy, I want you to be part of the team. Just one thing, okay? Uh, we are going to be working with Jewish people, and because everyone knows you're half Greek, uh, we need to make sure that you have some credibility. So Timothy's like, okay, so what do I need to do? Just get circumcised. Guys, you know, if you were like, oh, I'd like to serve the Lord. I want to join the Apostle Paul and Silas. And Paul says, well, just one thing, one little thing, <laughs> get circumcised. I don't know. How many of you would sign up for that? People give up for much lesser things. And I'm thinking, at least at the get-go, there's something to be said about Timothy. Wow, he's willing, to, he's willing to take a very difficult step. I mean, that's commitment. I mean, guys, think about this. How committed are you to the gospel ministry? I mean, this seems outrageous. But Timothy submitted himself. So now it's Paul, Silas, and Timothy. They're a team of three. And they continue the journey to deliver the message from the apostles and elders in Jerusalem. In Acts 16, 5, it says, the churches were being strengthened in the faith and abounding in number daily. Now, I want to take a moment and stop there. You know, for Lighthouse LA, we have a vision statement, right? What's the vision statement? Again, to plant churches. Okay, to plant churches. The vision is to plant churches. And where do we get the primary passage to defend that? Acts 1.8, right? And the book of Acts really is kind of this picture of, you, know, you, you could say sort of a, a template or the precedent that was set. Churches were being planted. 
Now, I'm not going to presume that we are equals to Paul in this way, but the book of Acts does provide a perspective that I think we really need to consider. There was the planting of churches. There was returning to strengthen those churches, but they kept planting. I mean, if you just follow the second missionary journey, they take a little side tour because they are forbidden to go certain directions by Jesus. But then they start planting churches in other places. And Thessalonica was one of those. Second missionary journey, they're strengthening their churches. And in verse 9, where it says, after having been forbidden by the Spirit of Jesus to speak in Asia, and that's an interesting thing to consider. It wasn't the time or the place to go. But instead, while they're in Troas, Paul has a vision of a man from Macedonia. And this man from Macedonia was appealing to him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. So after Paul had that vision, it says that they immediately sought to go to Macedonia. They went from Troas to Samothrace to Neapolis and ended up in Philippi, which was a leading city of the district of Macedonia. Now, when you follow this, you know, we'll just call it a story. This is the story of Paul, Silas, and Timothy. They're going from one city to the next. And back then, they didn't have cars, right? Most of the time, they're probably walking, and they're together. You know, one of the things I always wonder about is, they had a lot of time, so what did they talk about? Like, what did Paul and Silas and Timothy talk about as they were walking together. I mean, no doubt there was probably some small talk like, uh, what's for lunch? And there's no McDonald's. You, you know, I wonder what, how they had to deal with food all along the way. But you can imagine that much of the conversation is about, so where does God want us to go? Where does he want us to take the gospel? Are we going to plant a church here or there? So they end up in Philippi, and it says on the Sabbath, they go outside the gate to the riverside where there was a place of prayer. Women met there to pray, and they met a woman named Lydia. And it says she was a worshiper of God, and she, along with her household, believed and were baptized. And she must have been uh, someone who had resources and means, so she takes in Paul, Silas, and Timothy, provides lodging, hosts them. Now, while they're in Philippi, Paul and Silas eventually were jailed. Why? Because as they were walking through the city, there was a a gal who was uh, demon-possessed and was basically uh, just being very irritable, uh, caused Paul to be irritated by the things that she would say. So Paul actually cast the demon out. Now, the guys who owned this gal were making money off of her, so they were upset. So they report Paul and Silas for being those who were promoting another king. So they were jailed. They were put in prison. Their garments were torn off. They were beaten with rods, and their feet were put into stocks. Now, why is that important to to know as part of the backstory? This is not an easy path that they're going. They are literally getting physically tortured and beaten. For the sake of the gospel. Yet they keep going. I mean, I thought about this. You know, when we think about church planting and lighthouse, you know, we're here to plant churches and do ministry and so forth. 
we struggle with just the issues of convenience and comfort. What would happen if there was persecution and suffering involved? Would we want to do the work of the gospel ministry? Paul and Silas, they had to be in a lot of pain. It says that their garments were torn. They were beaten with rods. And then they were put into a little torture chamber called stocks. But it says that Paul and Silas, uh, I'm not sure where Timothy is. It doesn't mention him, but he's not mentioned there. But Paul and Silas are. And it says at midnight, they were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. Another thing to think about. Would you consider praying and singing hymns after you have been physically beaten and you're put into this torture rack? And by midnight, you're probably in a lot of pain. Now again, we, we don't pray, we don't sing hymns for much lesser reasons. I'm not saying that to guilt us. I'm saying that's just a reality for us. But Paul and Silas, they are praying and singing hymns of praise to God as they are in stocks, as they are uh, still feeling the pain from physically being physically beaten. And it says there that the prisoners were listening to them. I mean, that's another one of those little observation points that you have to consider. The other prisoners are probably wondering, who are these crazy guys? They're praying and they're singing. I mean, think about the songs that we sing. Would you sing those songs when you're going through times of suffering? So much so that you sing out loud for others to hear and they listen to you and you, you, you kind of think, I wonder what they're thinking. You know, last night uh, when, when I got home after the men's thing, uh, the, some car drove by and it was just waiting there and they were bumping some loud music. It was just like, boom, 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 boom. And I was like, it's like 1030. Like, what's going on? And the guy's just sitting there. He's like, I'm like, do you have no consideration? And I'm just listening to this. And I was like, it's just loud. And, you know, I'm at the stage now where, you know, when the bass is like really strong, I feel it here. I feel it. Boom, 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 boom. <laughs> it hurts. It, it literally hurts me now. But imagine hearing someone singing hymns in prison. And so what happens? It says a great earthquake came. Okay, now, you live in Southern California long enough, you know what it's like. In fact, anything below like a 6.0, it's kind of like, eh, whatever. One of the most memorable moments, uh, maybe this a little bit uh, <laughs> much to share. Angie and I, we are having a little difficult conversation. This is San Diego. And uh, we're in the loft area. And as we're having this difficult conversation, all of a sudden an earthquake happens. And one of the most beautiful memories of my life happened. She just came and grabbed me and held on to me. She's like, what, what happened? I was like, a sign from God. <laughs> I was like, thank you, God. What a timely earthquake. I was, I was so happy. And she just held on. Remember that? <laughs> Uh, uh. Anyway, uh, memorable earthquake. But this, this earthquake 
This is a crazy earthquake. It says it was a great earthquake, and it just happened that all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. That's a weird earthquake. I mean, they're all chained up, doors are locked, and it says that the earthquake opened all the doors and the chains were unfastened. I mean, that's just crazy. The jailer evidently was sleeping. He wakes up, and he's assuming what anyone would have assumed. I mean, if you were a prisoner in a jail, and the chains were unfastened, and the doors are opened, what would you do? You'd run, right? You're like, thank you. Whoever did this earthquake, you just freed us from prison. So the jailer, it's going to be his head, he assumes all the prisoners had escaped. So he pulls out his sword. He's about to kill himself. And it says, Paul, and it specifically says this, Paul cried out with a loud voice. He says, do not harm yourself for we are all here. That's the crying out with a loud voice. Why? Because this guy was about to kill himself. So he's basically saying, stop. Don't hurt yourself. We are all here. So you got to think now, what's going on in the mind of the jailer? Great earthquake. Everyone's chains are unfastened. The doors are opened. He thinks they all escaped. Paul says, don't do it. We're still here. What are the first words from his mouth? This is why you got to read the text here. It says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Wow. I mean, God used and orchestrated all of that so that this particular jailer would be brought to salvation. So it says, they spoke the word of the Lord to him with his household. The entire household believes they're baptized. Now, what's not said in the text is the prisoners are still there. They listen to Paul and Silas singing. The earthquake happens. They hear Paul yell with a loud voice because they were all there. You just wonder what happened. We don't know what happened. But one thing I think is they probably are wondering, like, who are these guys? Paul and Silas. They just got beaten. Their clothes have been ripped from them. And yet, what are they doing? They are sharing the gospel of Christ. And you can only imagine that jailer and his household in the days and weeks and months and years to come. We don't know the story. In fact, one of the things that might be, uh, I don't know how heaven's going to work, but we have eternity, so there's a lot of time that we can talk. I, I want to go to like that jailer and go, so, so tell me the story. Like, how did it happen? That must have been a crazy story. But that's how you came to know Christ. The next day, the chief magistrate calls for policemen to release Paul and Silas. They just kind of wanted to do it sort of under the table almost. But what they didn't know was that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. Paul isn't going to let them off that easy. He was born a Roman citizen. And, you know, citizenship had its rights and privileges. And one of the things you just couldn't do was just jail someone, beat them, 
tear their clothes. So when he says, no, you need to tell the authorities to come, don't just send your lackeys. You come. You need to recognize that we are Roman citizens. Now, once they heard that, they're afraid. Why? Because you don't mess with that. So it says that they came, they formally appealed to them, and they formally requested them to leave the city. I mean, if you just kind of follow this story, this is like high drama. I mean, here are Paul and Silas. And again, we don't know where Timothy is in all this because he's not mentioned. But they, it, it happens just overnight. They're beaten. They're locked in stocks. They're in jail. Earthquake. Salvation comes to the jailer and his household. The next day, they are asked to leave. So they give greetings to Lydia and their household, and they left. They continue to travel, and they eventually end up in Thessalonica, Acts 17, verse 1. So that's kind of like the backstory of them getting to Thessalonica. Now, why is that important to know? Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they've already gone through so much by the, by the time they get to Thessalonica. You'd almost want to think like, you know what? Uh, maybe let's just go back now. I mean, this is kind of hard. I and mean, we, we literally were beaten. But they continue. Even though they had been requested to leave, they don't stop there. They continue and they go to Thessalonica. Now look at Acts chapter 17, verse 1. They go to the synagogue of the Jews, and this was Paul's custom. He would find the synagogue of the Jews because he would still go to his own people. And it says, for three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. He preached that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, showing the Jews that Jesus was indeed the Christ, the promised Messiah. Now it says some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as well as a great multitude of God-fearing Gentiles. And then it says, uh, uses this interesting language. And not a few women, uh, not a few of the leading women of the city. So in other words, quite a few. This is the beginning of the church in Thessalonica. I mean, imagine just what that must have been like. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they go, they share the gospel. Jews are getting saved, Gentiles are getting saved. The church forms. But then it says there were Jews who became jealous. And so what do they do? They took, they took wicked men from the marketplace. They just took like hoodlums, gangsters, formed a mob, and set the city in an uproar. And they go to the house of Jason, who evidently was one of the part of the church uh, plant there, and they were looking for Paul and Silas to drag them out to bring them out to the assembly. But they couldn't find Paul and Silas. So they dragged Jason and some of the brothers to the city authorities, and they accused them in this way. Uh, the LSB says it this way. These men who have upset the world have come here also. I, I like the way the ESV renders this. I know most of you have ESV. It says, these men who have turned the world upside down. Turned the world upside down. I remember during the musical Hamilton, they used that term too, that phrase. It's not original for them. It's from here. Who are the people that turn the world upside down? Christians. They tried to accuse 
the Christians of saying there was another king. They said they believe in another king, not Caesar. They believe in this King Jesus. Now, Jason posts a bond, and so he and the others, they're released. Now, think about this. Paul and Silas, they have been experiencing persecution already throughout this second missionary journey. So when this all happens, the brothers in Thessalonica, Acts 17.10, it says, immediately sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. So they had to abruptly leave Thessalonica and they were sent to Berea. Why? Because the church there cared for their safety. So they go to Berea. They do the same thing. They go to the synagogue of the Jews. And the Bereans, it says, were more noble-minded than those of Thessalonica as they received the word with great eagerness and examined the scriptures to see whether what Paul said was true. And it says that many in Berea believed. Quite a few prominent Greek women and men were saved as well. But... The Jews who had caused trouble in Thessalonica, they follow Paul to Berea and they persecute the believers there. It says they were shaking up and disturbing the crowds. So the Berean believers did the same thing what the Thessalonian believers did. They immediately sent Paul out to go as far as the sea. And Silas and Timothy stayed in Berea. Paul reaches Athens and sends word that Silas and Timothy would join them as soon as possible. So in Acts 18.1, Paul goes from Athens to Corinth. And in Corinth, he is there for about 18 months. And it's during this time in Corinth that Paul writes the letters of First and Second Thessalonians. And First Thessalonians in particular was written so that he could explain why he had to leave so abruptly. I mean, he didn't even really get to say goodbye. They were so concerned for his safety that it says that they immediately sent him away. This was a church plant. I mean, this is a young church. So he writes to them to encourage them. They need to be given hope. They are already facing challenges, persecution, wrong teaching, false teaching. And again, in chapter two, it really reflects the heart of Paul. He explains to them, it was not in vain that they had visited them. Even though that time was short, even though circumstances turned out the way they did, said it wasn't in vain in vain now they had already suffered and had been mistreated in philippi they go to thessalonica they were bold in god to speak the gospel amid much struggle paul writes they did not come to please men but to please god they didn't come with flattering words they didn't do it to make money off of them in fact they worked on their own so not to be a burden during that short time they were there Paul cared for them as a mother tenderly cares for her own children. There was this fond affection. They not only imparted the gospel, but their very lives. You see, there's something about the ministry of Paul that you have to really make sure you understand. Yes, he proclaimed truth, but he also loved with great affection and compassion. There was a great love and a great joy that he found in the Thessalonian church. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians 3, uh, verse 1, because of the great concern for the church, Timothy was sent to strengthen and encourage them in the faith so that they wouldn't be shaken by the afflictions they faced. Timothy comes back with good news of their faith and love. And he tells Paul that the church remembered him kindly, longed to see them. 
So Paul writes they wanted to return to Thessalonica at some point so that they could continue the work of instructing them in the faith. And so you see chapters 4 and 5, there's instruction that he does give to them. We're going to look at that hopefully down the road sometime soon. But now you know the historical backstory to 1 Thessalonians. And it provides really a, a perspective that shows you that these are real people involved. Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy. And just to kind of highlight this in a very um, brief way, you see a humble ministry partnership, point two. So look at 1 Thessalonians 1.1. 1, 1. It says, Paul and Sylvanus and Timothy. Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy. Now, note here, there's no title attached to any of them. They're just three names. And you go, is that a big deal? Yeah, it's kind of a big deal. Because again, you know, if you want to do Bible study, what do you do? Observe, observe, observe. How many Pauline epistles? 13. Romans to Philemon. In all of the Pauline epistles, there are only three that don't mention that Paul is an apostle. Romans 1.1, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle. 1 Corinthians 1.1, Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Timothy's included in several of these. Galatians 1.1, Paul, an apostle. Ephesians 1.1, Paul, an apostle. Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ. That's the first time we don't see apostle mentioned. And if you know anything about the book of Philippians, there's a very affectionate relationship that Paul has with them as well. His apostleship is not questioned there. Just like in Thessalonica. Colossians 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. First and second, Timothy, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. So even in his personal letter to Timothy, he uses the title apostle. Titus 1.1, Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And in Philemon, the last one, it says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. So he doesn't mention that he's an apostle there. Now, is that kind of a big deal? Yeah. His apostleship wasn't questioned because of the relationship. You know, in, uh, for the Corinthian church, Paul actually had to defend his apostleship because the church there questioned it. There's something to be said about this kind of a relationship where there's no appealing to titles. It's just Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy. We were with you. We ministered. We suffered before, during, and after. But we want you to know how much we love you. And the fact that Paul includes Sylvanus and Timothy in the greeting is a testament to their partnership, as well as the investment that all three of them made into the church. Now there's a whole lot we can talk about Paul. I'm not going to do that today. I uh, remember when John MacArthur started uh, his uh, preaching series on the book of Romans. Uh, this is way back when I was still going to Grace Church. You know, he said, Paul. And uh, he gave a whole sermon on Paul. We, you know, were like, this is going to take a long time. I forget how long he took. Many years, the Romans. But if you know anything about the testimony of Paul, he was dramatically saved from being one who persecuted and killed Christians 
to then becoming eventually a martyr himself. And one of the things that is so character, characteristic about the life of Paul is how much his life was so invested into sharing the gospel, strengthening believers, loving them. God used them in such great ways. I've mentioned already a little bit about Silvanus, who's also known as Silas. You see him mentioned several other times in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 1.19. 2 Thessalonians 1.1, 1, 1, again in the greeting there, and 1 Peter 5.12, the Apostle Peter mentions Silvanus as a faithful brother. There's not much else that we know. I was reading up on him, and some gave some kind of strange kind of theories and stuff like that. Sometimes, you know, you almost have to make up something to make it sound like it's substantial. What we do know, what we see revealed is Silas was a faithful minister of the gospel who was available to serve. He goes with the delegation to Antioch by the Jerusalem church. He goes with Paul on the second missionary journey, and evidently he partners with the apostle Peter at some point. Timothy. Timothy is Paul's protege. And again, there's much more we can talk about Timothy, but one of the things that you see is Timothy is, in, is mentioned in almost all of the Pauline epistles. Romans 16, 21, 1 Corinthians 4, 17, 2 Corinthians 1, 1, Philippians 1, 1, Colossians 1, 1, 1 Thessalonians 1, 1, 2 Thessalonians 1, Philemon 1. He's also mentioned in Hebrews 13, 23 as having been released from imprisonment. So Timothy suffered as well. Timothy was a true partner in the gospel ministry. In fact, Paul's last letter Second Timothy expresses how much he is a son in the faith, how much Paul cared for him. I think it'd be helpful for us to consider again, these are real people, real life people who cared for people. We don't know the entire story, but what we do see is that there was this tremendous partnership in the work of the gospel. Now, it was written to the church, Thessalonians, says to the church of the Thessalonians. One commentator notes that it's not the church that determined what was Scripture. It was Scripture was given to the church. They received the Scriptures, the church. The word ekklesia, no, it, it's, it defines the church as those who have been called out. In 1 Thessalonians 1.4, it reflects those who are also called through election, those who have been chosen by God. So this is an important truth to understand. Those who make up the church are not just those who attend a church building. The church is made up of those who are called by God. You are the called out ones. And it gives a little bit more help there. The church is defined by being in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you know you are part of the church? It is because you have a relationship with God as your Father. There's a vital union here that you have been adopted into the family of God. You now call God Father. It is a relationship that is personal and intimate. It is because the Father has called you to be His son, His daughter. I, I want to just encourage you to think about that. Do you call God Father? 
You know, there, there are a lot of folks. I mean, you know, if there's one thing I learned dealing with guys, a lot of guys have terrible relationships with their fathers. A lot of ladies have a terrible relationship with their fathers too. Or there is just the absence of a father. There is a father that you can trust. The one who, while you were yet a sinner, sent his son to die. To save you from your sins. And so that's why when it says, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, this relationship that the church has is in the Father and in the Son. And it's together. And it also kind of shows the pairing of that relationship between God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When you are truly a part of the church, it is because you are in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the full term that Paul uses, the formal term for Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. John MacArthur writes this, the Lord, the term Lord describes him as creator, sovereign ruler, the one who made us, bought us, rules over us, and to whom we owe full allegiance. Jesus, means Jehovah saves, refers to his humanity. It was the name given at his birth. Christ, the anointed one, is the Greek term for the Messiah, the one promised by God to fulfill his plan of redemption. You know, when you go through a greeting for a letter, it's easy to just kind of gloss over it. But there's so much rich truth to be found there. Paul is writing to the Thessalonian believers the church in Thessalonica that God used him to plant. And he says, I'm writing to you, those who are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know who you are? Do you know your identity? These days, so much peep, so there's so much that people are talking about in terms of how to identify and in some, some ways, it's understandable. People don't know how to define their identity. How do you define your identity? Do you define it because of your history? Because of your family background? Your ethnic culture? Your circumstances? Your personality? As a Christian, there is only one thing that truly defines us. It is our relationship with God. We call God Father. We submit to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You know, I'm sure that back then they had the same issue as we do today. There are people who claim to be part of the church, but they really aren't. Now, we're not the ones to necessarily judge that we don't know. We talked about this yesterday, guys, right? Where Paul writes, test yourselves to see whether you're of the faith. It's, ha- it's happened all throughout church history. There are those who profess, but they actually are not in relationship with God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, because if you were, you would then take what is written here, because it wasn't just for the church at Thessalonica. This is even for us as believers. Why? Because we are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are receiving this truth because of the relationship that we have. Do you know God as your Father? 
Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you repented of your sins? Have you placed your faith in Christ alone? You know, maybe just maybe sometimes God allows circumstances in your life to help strip away everything so that the only thing that's left is that you have to desperately look to God. And the enemy's going to do everything he can to keep you from trusting him. I, I think if there's one thing as a church that we need to really be reminded of often is who are we? Who are we? We are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul gives this customary gre- greeting, grace to you and peace. Grace to you and peace. Again, something that you don't just quickly gloss over. He introduces God's grace as sets the tone, his undeserved favor, the grace that was shown to us in saving us from sin, providing the forgiveness of sins, granting us the gift of eternal life, saving us from eternal death. We have received the greatest gift, the grace of God in salvation. You know, I remember when I was young, uh, there was a Christmas, I didn't get any Christmas gifts. It was kind of sad. You know, if there's one day you're like kind of looking forward to. I know my girls, when we had Christmas Day, Christmas Eve, like, can we open one? Can we open one gift? So we had this custom tradition that we're like, okay, you can open one gift Christmas Eve. I remember one year, though, we were like, can we open another? We ended up opening all our gifts on Christmas Eve. Because, <laughs> you know, there's something about opening a gift. You're just like, what is it? What is it? And uh, there are a lot of fun memories. Uh, Olivia's not here, so, you know. This won't make her sad unless she listens to it. I remember she gave me, she was little, she gave me a gift, and it looked like a can of pineapples. She knew I love pineapples, so she actually got a can of pineapples. So before I open it, I go, oh, is it a, is it a can of pineapples? And she started crying because <laughs> I ruined it. I ruined the gift to this day. You, you could mention it even to her. Go, hey, I heard you gave your dad a can of pineapples when you are little. She'll probably look at you and just go, it's still a sore spot. Because there's something special about a gift. That's grace. You should always be amazed by God's grace. The grace that was given to you. I mean, we in Christ have received the most indescribable gift. The gift of Christ. Grace to you and peace. We of all people actually have peace. Why? Because we are at peace with God. You might have a swirling, just craziness of life around you, but you can have peace because you are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to stop there because uh, verse 2 kind of connects to verse 3. So we'll just keep going uh, next Sunday on that. And actually is kind of appropriate because it talks about thanksgiving and gratitude. But I, I just want to kind of stop right there and challenge you to see what Paul has written just in one verse. We just looked at one verse today, but don't worry, we'll look at more later. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. 
There's a whole backstory to that. You need to know that backstory so you can understand how precious this letter was to the Thessalonians. But it's not just precious to them, it's precious to us too. Because we are included into this called outness of the church. We've been called out to identify as Christians who belong to the church of Jesus Christ because we are in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. If there's anything that should encourage you, think and meditate on that. You know, there are so many times where I I get so discouraged just with daily life. And... uh, you know, the last few weeks, there was just hard news to deal with. And, you know, in First Thessalonians, when it says in chapter 5, Rejoice always, pray without seeking, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God. Now, guys, remember we talked about that. It's part of God's will. Be saying thanks. But Why? we are able to be grateful people in the midst of trials because we know who we are. Paul sets that very clear from the get-go. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads as we prepare for communion. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul writes, do not take the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. If you need the elements, Andy is coming by. What does it mean to not take in an unworthy manner? Well, first of all, if you're not a believer, it's not appropriate to take this because it's a celebration of a relationship. But even as a believer, are you living in light of that relationship? Now, one of the things that we are reminded is that we still sin. We sin daily. But the one difference between someone who is not a believer versus one who is a believer is that we confess our sins. We confess our sins and we know that Jesus is the one who will cleanse us from all sins. He is the righteous one. He is the gracious one. He already knows how sinful we are. That's why he came. He came to save us from our sins. He's the one who brings grace and peace to us so that we might be restored to a right relationship. I don't know where you all are today, spiritually. There might be some who don't know Christ. There might be those who are struggling in a relationship with Christ. You might be doing well in your relationship with Christ. What matters is Christ. Will you be in right relationship with him? Communion is an opportunity to do that. If you're not a Christian, even now you can repent of your sins and tell Jesus, I trust you alone to save me because of what you did on the cross. And if you are a believer and you need to make things right with God, you can confess that right now. Jesus, you already know. I'm just agreeing with you. That's what confession is. I'm just agreeing with what you already know. I'm a sinner. Cleanse me 
from all unrighteousness. Only you could do that. 1 Corinthians 11 says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was being betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. You know, before we have the sermon, we have the scripture reading in a time of confession. We need to have times of confession often so that we would remember that it is only through what Christ did that we are cleansed from our sin. So as we take communion, let's be reminded of that as well. Only Jesus can cleanse us from sin. Let's take it together.